are dismissed at this time to Children's Church. Uh, I feel a little guilty. Jason was all spiritual when the kids were up here playing, and I was like, I hope they don't leave a truck here for me to trip over when I come uh, when I come up here. But it was it was good to just see them all uh, playing around. Take your Bibles and uh, open up to uh, Romans chapter seven, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter seven, verses uh, one through six. Uh, I remember when I was in Bible college and uh, we were going through the book of Romans and I think almost every week the the professor would come in to every class and say, uh, and this section is the hardest section in Romans. Uh, And this section is the most difficult debated section in Romans. He pretty much repeated that every week. Chapter 7, I think, for me, is one of the the more difficult sections of chapter uh, of Romans, just because of as you get into some of the later stuff, you you do find yourself asking, uh, who is this I that Paul is talking about? We want to read just verses one through six this morning. We want to uh, we'll be spending hopefully the next two or three weeks in Romans seven and show where Paul is taking this. But let's read verses one through six this morning. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man before her husband, while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to the law, that which held us captive, so that we might serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just want to come before you this morning and give you praise. We want to give you honor. We want to ask that you would honor your word, that you would help us to understand this passage, that you would help us to to apply this passage, that you would give us uh, insight through the Holy Spirit, uh, that he would nourish us in our in our spiritual lives and that we would feel fed. Uh, Give me the, the words to say. Give me clarity of mind and and speech as well. And may you be honored and glorified in all that we do. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I found myself this week as I was preparing, uh, telling myself, why does it seem like it's always on a fellowship Sunday that we get into issues of the law? And then I always end up making some sort of joke about how we're now allowed to eat shellfish during this fellowship Sunday. Uh, So let me just get that joke out of the way. For fellowship Sunday today, we can have shellfish because we are not uh, under the Old Testament law and all the food laws. But it does bring up an important question in the Christian life. How do we obey and follow God? How do we obey and follow God? Our main point this morning is that we have died to the law so that we can bear fruit for God. And so when we talk about the law here, we're not talking simply about the commands of God, but we're talking specifically about the Mosaic law, 
We are talking about the Old Covenant. Those things that the the nation of Israel was under. And how does that relate to the people of God today? How does that relate to us in the church? On the one hand, we want to say that people were always saved the same way. And that was by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, believing into the future coming one. Uh, Now we believe in what he has done. But there was a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So you find yourself asking some of these questions. How does my Christian growth work? What is necessary? And we would say that the inward working of the Holy Spirit is necessary for sanctification, for Christian growth in holiness. It does bring up two issues then in this passage. What is the role of the law in God's plan? Why the law? Why the Mosaic Covenant? And then it brings up the next question. What is my present relationship to the law of God, specifically to the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant? And so we begin to work through this passage. But the main point is we have died to the law so that we can bear fruit for God. Some might say, and Paul seems at times to be countering some, well, Paul, if we don't have the law, if we are not under the law like we were in Old Testament Israel, then I can just live however I want. I don't have rules over me. And Paul has been addressing that to say, no, you are alive to God. You are in union with Jesus Christ. In the same way, he brings up the idea here that we do and can bear fruit for God. So we cannot just throw off the Old Testament and say, well, I can live however I want now. But what is our relationship? First, this morning, Paul uses the analogy that just when a sp- like when a spouse dies, so too a believer has died to the law. I think this is a pretty uh, simple illustration for us to understand. But Paul is telling us that the Mosaic law was binding as long as we lived under it. So he says in verse one, and do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, sometimes we make the joke in our society that that taxes can still be charged to you after you die uh, as they settle your accounts. But but generally speaking, Prosecutors cannot prosecute you after you have died. The statutes of limitations on on uh, some laws end with your death. And Paul here is speaking as well about the Old Testament law. It's binding on you as long as you are alive. Uh, When you die, your eternal fate is sealed. You are either in heaven or in hell. And then Paul uses the analogy of marriage. Look at verse 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. If it were her, if, but if her husband dies, she is released from the marriage. Accordingly, she will be an adulterer, called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And she, if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. The, the analogy is, is very simple. If you're married, your marriage is until death do you part. This is God's plan and, and purpose for marriage. 
So if you cheat on your spouse and you go out with another while your spouse is still living, you are considered an adulterer, an adulteress. Why? Because you cheated and broke the marriage vows. The vows were until death do you part. Now, of course, Jesus makes some allowances for divorce in the New Testament if there's sexual immorality that's involved. Uh, But this is because of sin, not because of God's plan. God's plan in Genesis chapter 2 is that that the, the husband should the man would leave his mother and father and and cling to his wife and the two should become one flesh. And so God's ideal here is that marriage is for life. But the idea then is if one of the partners in the marriage dies, the the covenant that you have, the the marriage vows that you have are automatically broken and not in a bad way, but that they've come to fulfillment. The marriage is over. You've kept your vow until the very end. And so if someone has their spouse die uh, and they want to go out and get remarried, uh, nobody says to them, oh, you're an adulterer. Oh, you're an adulteress. Nobody says, well, you're a a loose person. You're cheating on your your former husband or, or wife. But rather we say, you know, you kept that vow. It was until death do you part. Uh, obviously, losing a spouse is very painful, but, but when you're ready and when the time is right and as God leads and allows, you're completely free to go and remarry. This is, this is like marriage vows 101. But Paul is making this analogy. Just as you are bound to the marriage covenant for as long as you live, but when someone's life is over, the living person then can remarry Paul is saying you are you are bound to the old covenant as long as you're alive. But when there's a death, things change. And so you're not under that anymore. Paul is using the analogy here to describe the relationship between the believer and the Mosaic Old Testament law. So you are dead to the law so that you might bear fruit. So so Paul says in verse four, then likewise in in the same way, he's he's continuing the analogy. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, this is where the analogy does break down a little bit. It's not an exact parallel. Because in the previous parallel, the person dies and then the other remarries. In this analogy, as Paul fleshes the analogy out, we haven't died physically, but we have died spiritually in Jesus Christ. So that just as Jesus Christ died on the cross, his death applies to you so that it is just as if You died. And he's developed this already in chapter 6 when he says, Don't you know that those of you who have been baptized have been baptized into Jesus' death? And you have been raised spiritually to live a new life for God? There, the enslaving power was sin. And he says, just as Jesus died, you're connected to Jesus. So, in a manner of speaking... You have died to the enslaving power of sin. Here, he's saying, 
you're in Jesus and you've died to the enslaving power of the Old Testament law and particularly the condemnation that the law brought on us when we didn't keep it. So he says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, if you want to just flip back to that, Paul says this, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means. And that's where Paul has fleshed out that we are dead to sin. But he makes the assumption that we are not under all of the aspects of the Mosaic covenant of the law. Then he says, well, shall we go on sinning? I have grace. Can I live however I want? No, absolutely not. What are some ways that we are dead to the law? First, we are free from the condemnation that the law brought. The law wasn't a means of salvation. The Old Testament Israelites were never supposed to keep the law in order to get saved. But it was a way of of regulating their relationship with God and teaching them and instructing them. And the law brought blessings and curses for living in the land. And if they kept the law, God promised blessings in the land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and God promised that they would prosper. If they broke the law, God promised that curses would come. Drought was one of the big curses. So you think in your Old Testament, remember Elijah and Elisha and how they're often ministering in times of drought and famine? They're doing that because the people of God have broken the law. You think of of, uh, Naomi in the book of Ruth, how her and her husband flee to Moab because of a famine. They leave the land because God's people in the land were breaking the law. And that's why the famine came. The ultimate curse was death. And even exile into Babylon, being kicked out of the land. The major problem with the Old Testament law, and we see this in the book of Deuteronomy, it doesn't change their hearts. Moses rebukes the people and calls them and he says, you've got you to circumcise your heart. You can have all of these laws and know what to do and believe, but it has to flow from the heart. You need to be a new person. And the law laid out, this is what you should do and this is what happens if you don't do it. But the law didn't change the individual's heart. And so Romans 7, 5 says, For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. The law in and of itself, and we'll get into this next week, Lord willing, uh, in and of itself is good and righteous and it comes from God. But it also doesn't come with power to obey the law. It lays out this is what you should do. This is what you should not do. But it stirs up sin. Imagine a jar of, and there's dirt in the bottom. And you take good water that's refreshing. And you're going to use that water in a sense to, to wash out the dirt, or so you think. And that water is good and clean and, and holy, if we can put it that way. 
and you pour the water into the dirty cup. And, and what does it do? That sediment that's sitting at the bottom is, is suddenly stirred up and you have muddy water. And so, in a way, the law exposes sin. That sin we have in our life, suddenly you pour the law in there and it goes, this is really bad. I use this joke a lot, but I think it's worth uh, analogy joke, whatever you want to call it. I think it's worth uh, using. You know how it is when you tell your kids, don't eat the cookies in the cookie jar. Like you specifically lay out the rule. And, and what does that do for most children? At least what did that do for me when I was a boy? You start thinking about cookies. And you start thinking about how yummy the cookies are. And you start thinking about how sneaking one nobody would miss. It's interesting that in our house, if everybody sneaks one, suddenly you go back to the cookie jar and you go, where did all the cookies go? And then suddenly, well, I had one. Well, I only had one. And then you go, well, that's, that's why we're missing half a dozen cookies. But the law is like that command. It gives you something good. Hey, don't eat the cookies. We don't want you to spoil your dinner. But what does it do when it connects with the sinful heart? Does the unbeliever, does the sinner just say, oh, okay, I'm going to follow God. No, it, it spells out what our transgressions are. It stirs them up. And Paul lays this out in Romans chapter 7. But also you'll see he's been laying the groundwork. Romans 5.20 For the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. By, by spelling out what the rules were as the law did, where the boundaries were, people then went out and broke them even more. You lay down the rule and then they go and they break it. Romans 7, 8, and 9. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You think about the whole Old Testament from the time of the Exodus and Moses giving them the law. And the history of Israel is by and large a history of her breaking the law. Now you have bright spots along the way. You have godly men like Samuel. You have godly men like David, although David sinned and broke the law. But as a whole, the nation is kind of on this constant downward spiral. And they might come out of it for short periods of time, but then they, it's like a roller coaster where they plunge back down into it. The Old Testament shows us that no matter how hard we try, we can't keep the commands of God. And that leaves us condemned. That leaves us under the curse. You know what the law primarily does overall? It shows you how much you and I need Jesus. Think about that for a minute. The law is good. But it's like a flashlight being shined into a dark corner. And you see all the cobwebs there. And you see all the roaches. And you see all the dirt. And you can't keep it. And it shows you. And even in the Old Testament, it was to show them 
how much they need God as a Savior and how much we need Jesus. So the law of God doesn't give life. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Romans 8.3 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He condemned sin in the flesh. How can we be saved? It's through the Lord Jesus Christ paying the penalty of the law. We transgress the law. We are guilty. The law never brought life and righteousness. I can't line up all the things of the law and say, if I can just keep these things, I can be saved. Because the law, ultimately, when it gets in my sinful heart, stirs that sin up. But it points me to Jesus. And Jesus saves. The law is good. But the law wasn't designed to bring you eternal life. It was designed to show you the character of God. So that you might see that life comes only in Jesus. And so the analogy is, you've died with Christ and you're no longer under the Mosaic law, but rather the New Covenant. Galatians 2.19-20 For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up to me. Notice Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead. We have, and this is, this is kind of giving you a picture of the scope of, of biblical history in the Old Testament to the New Testament. You have in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God's people are in exile. They are in Babylon. The, the ultimate curse of breaking the law is upon them. They are taken out of the promised land of God. It's a, a metaphor for losing their inheritance. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah says, say, we need something better. We need to be redeemed from the transgressions that we've committed. And God says that when He does this, He will make a new covenant. And it will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers, He said. It will not be things written on tablets of stone and saying simply, here are the rules, here are the laws, and now go and try to do them. He says, I will write My law upon your heart. I will put the Spirit within you, He says. I will circumcise your heart of stone and put in it a heart of flesh. Meaning, we have this hard heart that does not love and enjoy the things of God. And we need to be changed from the inside. And no amount of finger wagging and laying down the rules will change us inside. We need God to put the Spirit in us. So that those things that Moses said in Deuteronomy, circumcise your heart. God says, yeah, I'm going to do that. 
That's what it means to be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Not only are you free from the guilt now, not only is the condemnation that you have because we are sinners and we break God's commands, not only are we free from that condemnation, but now He gives us something new. The Holy Spirit. A new power. A new motivation. There is a radical change in our life when we become believers because we have died with Christ and been raised to new life. That dead heart has been, you you are, are spiritually speaking, having a heart transplant. The dead heart is taken out. You are dead in your sins and that is removed and the Holy Spirit is is given to you and put within you and now you have a soft heart that delights in the things of God. And so he says, you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Again, the analogy is like with marriage, although the difference is here, we're the ones dying and getting remarried. But we die to the law. That old covenant is broken. And now we belong to another. We've been remarried, if you will, to the new covenant, to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews gets at this a little bit in Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who were called to receive the promised eternal inheritance, or they may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What is Hebrews saying? The law brought death. Nobody kept the law, and so all we have are a whole bunch of transgressions of sinning against God. But what did God do as the solution? He set forth the Lord Jesus Christ to be a mediator of a new covenant. And you think about how even in the Old Testament, as they're keeping the law and they're doing all the signs and symbols of the law, they go in every year and offer sacrifices. And even daily they had sacrifices going on in the temple. And then once a year was the, the sacrifice of atonement. And Hebrews says that Jesus Christ died one time for all time to put away sin. That's what God has done for you and I. Galatians 2.20 and 21 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. This is that idea. I belong to another. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Righteousness does not come through the law. What does that mean for you and I? You can't take out a list of rules, take out the Ten Commandments, and keep them so perfectly that you can get yourself to heaven. You can't be righteous in God's sight based on how you live your life. You need Jesus Christ. And only in Jesus Christ do we find a perfect righteousness that is given to us as a gift. Even more, we never stand before God on the basis of keeping the law. 
God doesn't give us a sort of a mulligan. You know how it is in golf where, where you mess something up and you take a mulligan and you just kind of cross that out and like it's basically like starting over and you don't count that stroke against yourself. God doesn't give us a mulligan and say, well, you tried really hard to keep the law. I'll wipe the slate clean, but now it's up to you to live righteously before me. Now you have to try really hard to keep this Old Testament law. No. He gives us what we need in Christ. And He brings us into union with Christ so that we can walk in the ways of God and we can and should and are expected to bear fruit. But we never stand before God and enter into heaven on the basis of the fruit that we bear. The fruit is the byproduct of God working the work of Christ in you. Christ saves you and the outworking of that salvation is fruit. Christ doesn't just make salvation possible and then you get salvation by how you live your life. Christ saves you and the fruit is the outworking of His good work already in you. There should, should there be holiness in my life? Should there be a change in my life? Yes, there should be a walking in the ways of God where we manifest the character of God. But it isn't done under the structure of the Mosaic Law. And this is where the crab dip analogy comes in. We recognize real quickly that we're not under the Old Testament food laws. Why is that? Why did God to Peter appear in the book of Acts and tell Peter, go ahead and eat these things that in the Old Testament law are unclean? Is he saying, well, those things really didn't matter? I mean, no, it was was the Word of God. But God has brought that Word to fulfillment through the working of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that now you can go out and eat things. We're not going to go down. Yesterday at Larry's birthday party, we had ham. You know, if we were in the Old Covenant, if we were in the Old Testament, there'd be no way we could touch this stuff. It would be ceremonially unclean. Third, this morning, in Christ we've been released from the law. And this is what we've been saying all along. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here, clearly, the law never liberated the people of God from the effects of sin. The more the Old Testament saints were told, do this, do this, do this, the more they rebelled. God said, you need the Spirit of Israel. Or excuse me, you need the Holy Spirit to change Israel. But if we've died to that Old Covenant, we can be in the New Covenant, which gives us the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that I have no understanding of morals Or I have nothing to do in obeying God? No, absolutely not. I follow God and bear fruit. But it does mean I have new life in Christ. And so Paul says here, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes it really clear that when he's talking about Spirit and he's talking about written code, 
He's a, a written law, or as this translation says, written code. Um, he's talking about the difference between the Old and New Covenant. How, how did the rule and law of God get written down in the Old Covenant? It was put on tablets of stone, and Moses brought it down from the mountain. But the promise in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. This idea of the new way of the spirit is saying, Paul is saying, God has written the law, the moral instructions on our hearts. We don't have a laundry list anymore. We have a change of our being. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And so we do serve God. We do follow God. We do walk in His ways. But where does the power come from? Where does the motivation come from. You know, you kind of, I'm sure some of you that have kids have seen this with your kids. Sometimes when you lay out rules for them, they're not motivated to obey you. And, and even when you punish them for disobeying the rules, sometimes they're not even then motivated to obey you. I had this happen sometimes in my life and, and one time in a foolhardy statement before my dad as I was getting in trouble, I, I said to him, he was actually gave me a spanking. I actually looked him in the eye and said, well, that doesn't hurt. Um, just rule of thumb, don't ever say that to your parents if you're getting in trouble. You know, don't ever say these consequences are no big deal. But but there was a thing it, it didn't stir up in that moment a, a desire to serve him. A desire to obey my dad. Now, you need rules for your kids, but you need to love them. And when you love your kids, and when you show them love, and when you give them a hug, and even when you punish them, if you you sit them down afterwards and, and you say things like, you know, I love you, I care for you, I just don't want to see you hurt. Or the reason we have this rule is because uh, because we love you. I don't want you burning your hand on the stove or whatever it might be. The child responds. In the same way, we can respond to God because we have even more seen the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and He has put the Holy Spirit in us. He's not a God, and, and He wasn't this way in the Old Testament, but He's not a God who just lectures us from on high. But then even more, when we were the ones failing Him, when, when all of the Old Testament is this history of how God's people never live up to the standard, Jesus comes and fulfills the law and then equips us to actually walk in God's ways. God doesn't just throw us out and say, well, you never lived up to my standards. I'm done with you. He, he redeems us. And then He equips you to obey Him so that you can serve in a new way. As I was preparing this this week, I was like, oh man, this, this stuff with the law, this gets really deep and you get into a lot of theology here. And what, what, is, what is Paul saying with all this stuff? But I want to try to just break it down here. What does it mean for me and my Christian life? We can get into all of the, what is Paul's theology of the law? How does that relate? 
And sometimes some of this we go, okay, that makes sense if you lived in that time and you were in a Jewish synagogue and now you needed to know what you're free from. But, but what does that mean for the 21st century? I think we have a couple different issues, but the main thing is, do I rely on the inward working of the Holy Spirit? Am I trusting in Christ for my salvation? But also, am I trusting and relying on the Holy Spirit to work those things necessary in me to serve God? You can only do it with the Holy Spirit. And if you're relying on your own strength, on your own might to obey God every day, you're going to stumble in sin. Trust the Holy Spirit. Second thing that this means for us today, we do not throw out the Old Testament. So I've said some things about the Mosaic Law and how we're not under it and all of these things. But, but the New Testament teaches we, we never throw out the Old Testament. We never say, well, you know, I'm just going just gonna to not pay attention to the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and those Old Testament stories. That was for then and we're Christians now. No. Paul will say in a few verses, the law is good. It gives us the character of God. It gives us all kinds of instructions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that these things were written for us on whom the end of the age has come. We are to learn from them and the mistakes that happen. And we are to learn how much God has done and see what we need. You can think of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. We use the Old Testament. But we also understand we're not under the Old Covenant in quite the same way that the Old Testament believer saved the same way that we're saved, but they had some different standards of living with respect to the ceremonial law. Let me put it in another way, kind of using an analogy. The law is not the end or the goal of God's plan. Christ is the end or the goal. The law is like the on-ramp on a highway. And, and you use the on-ramp to get up to speed so that you can drive on the highway. The law is the on-ramp that points us to Christ. It brings us up to speed. It shows us our great need of Jesus Christ. But if you drive on the on-ramp, you will wreck your tires and your car. Uh, you know how it is when the on-ramp is starting to run out and you're trying to merge in and there's just a line of traffic and you're, you're trying to time it, like how long can I stay on this ramp? And, and sometimes you even go a little further than past the end of the ramp because you can't merge into traffic. You can't maintain your Christian spiritual life simply by being under the law. You couldn't get saved that way. You need the Holy Spirit. You can't drive on the on-ramp. But the on-ramp brings you to Christ and you say, oh, how marvelous He is that He would do what I cannot do. That the law was powerless to liberate me from this enslavement to sin. But God did it in His Son. And so you merge on. And you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second, this morning, or I guess this is third, actually. Sanctification in the Christian life cannot be driven 
by a bunch of rules or the law. The Christian life is not about returning to, to, returning to the Mosaic law for sanctification and obedience. We don't have to keep the food laws. We don't have to go out and make sacrifices every day. And when we keep the moral laws, the do not steal, do not murder, the Ten Commandments, those sorts of things, we're doing them because the Holy Spirit is there, not simply because we have tablets of stone. Let me give you just one way that I've seen this practical. You, you may not believe this. Maybe you've never encountered this. But I've actually encountered Christians that have said to me, as a believer, if we're really going to be faithful to God, we need to keep the Old Testament feast days. I, I don't mean just like, let's remember them. They're, they're a good thing. You know, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's study Leviticus and know what they point to and what the fulfillment is. I, I mean somebody saying like, you need to keep these just as if you were uh, an Orthodox Jewish person. So like on the day of Booth, the Feast of Booth, you know, let's set up the hut inside our house. And, and I see Jeff smiling because he's shared he has a Jewish friend that actually, that actually does that. But I'm talking about someone who's a Christian saying, you need to do this because this is what good, strong Christians should do. You don't want to disobey God, do you? This law is fulfilled in Jesus. We walk in a new way. Not that we throw out the Old Testament, but we see how it's fulfilled. It's come to its climax in Christ. Second, on a more practical level, adding more and more rules to your life doesn't necessarily ensure that you will grow as a Christian. Having a list of rules, having what we might call law, Sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking we are walking with God because we have checked off the boxes. Think about how the Pharisees acted in the New Testament. I mean, when it, when it came to, to outwardly looking righteous, man, they were tip-top shape. You know, the commands that, that, that they should keep the Word of God on them, you know, they had their boxes, their phylactery boxes that they would put a box and tie it to their head and the Word of God would be in there. And they would have long tassels on their garment and they would, they would have extra strict rules so that, that you know, here's the, the boundary for breaking the law. They would make an even more specific rule so that you wouldn't even get close to breaking the law. You cannot maintain and continue your relationship with God simply by adding extra rules. You think about parenting even. As your, as your children grow up, there comes a time that you have to give them less and less rules and teach them more and more how to obey from the heart. You know, when they're little, you just lay out the rule. Hey, don't touch this. Don't do this. As they get older and they can understand some things, you tell them why. You don't touch this. You'll burn yourself. Maybe when they first start hanging out with friends, you say, curfew is 8 o'clock. And if they are in the house at 8.01, you know, there's some sort of punishment. But when they go off to college, you can't call them up or text them and say, did you make curfew tonight? That's what we call the helicopter parents today, right? They're always meddling. But you teach them to make wise decisions. 
Do they have standards they need to keep? Absolutely. Do they have do you want them to walk in the ways of God? Absolutely. But sending them off to college or off to high school or wherever with just a laundry list of of things to do and how to live doesn't actually touch the heart. And how true is that in your own life? You can come up with a list of things of I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, but you can check off all the things on the list and that doesn't necessarily mean you have a heart for serving God. Now, do we have commands to keep? Absolutely. Do we have a standard laid out in the Word of God? Absolutely. But God wants us to obey Him from a heart that's been changed and regenerated. What's your motivation for living the Christian life daily? How do you, how do you even perceive yourself in a relationship? Is it always about, oh, God is this divine rule giver? I better keep my life in check lest something bad happen? Then sometimes when something bad happens, we can end up like Job. You know, hey, this isn't fair. I didn't do anything wrong. I kept all the rules. Or do I see myself as one who's been redeemed and changed so that I serve in a new way? Don't measure your Christian growth simply by a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, You can get really good at checking off a list, but letting sin grow in your heart. Finally, pursue the excellencies of Christ. It's fascinating that Paul says when he goes through the fruit of the Spirit, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. It's, It's limitless in how you can love someone. It's limitless in the type of joy that you can have in Christ. It's limitless to have this patience and kindness and goodness. There's there's no boundary here saying, well, you know, you had too much patience or too much goodness or too much faithfulness. There's no law prohibiting these things. And then he says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The law still teaches me the good character of God. The law still teaches me what God is like and even shows to me commands. But what I need is not the law and rules, but I need to be crucified in the flesh. I need that sin put to death in me. And when you struggle and fight against sin, sometimes you do have to remind yourself, you know, God's Word says I shouldn't do this. But you also have to say, I need power from God. I need this crucifixion in the flesh. And I don't need in this moment where I'm struggling with sin just to try harder to keep a rule. I actually need to put the desire to sin to death. And only God does that in Christ. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for the kindness and the love that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, as we think about uh, these weighty topics here today, we ask that your spirit would be at work. We ask that you would convict us, that you would uh, make us excited about serving you and walking in this new way of the Holy Spirit, that we are a, a new creation because of Jesus Christ. We just pray all of these things in his name. Amen.
you could stand with us for this last song.